This past Tuesday uh, after dinner, my children and I ate homemade popsicles um, on our back porch. Uh, it was an idyllic moment at the end of a rather busy day. The sun was setting, the breeze was nice, the popsicles were sweet. Earlier in the day, I had memorized this passage and uh, I was looking for a chance to practice. So I said, kids, can I share with you the Bible passage that I memorized? Sure, Dad, they said. Brittany came out of the house with Abigail, our, our one-year-old daughter, just as I hit the second part of the parable, the part where Jesus talks about the wicked being thrown into the blazing furnace and the subsequent weeping and gnashing of teeth. The kids didn't react or say anything after I had finished. They just stared at me eating their banana and blueberry popsicles. Brittany broke the silence. Maybe that's not the best pre-bedtime Bible story, honey. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. And then there was this separation between those that could be eaten and those that could not. This, says Jesus, is how it will be at the end of the age. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Why would our gentle and loving Savior preach a parable like this? Didn't he know that this would be the last parable the crowds heard before going to bed that night? He could have sent them home with an inspiring picture of the pearly gates, but instead he sends them home with a picture of fish rotting on the shore, the wicked being thrown into the fire. And we might wonder, is this the same person who ate with sinners and befriended prostitutes? I thought Jesus was all about love and inclusivity. This net business sounds awfully like the God of the Old Testament. You know, back in the second century, uh, a church leader named Marcion concluded that there is an incompatibility between the God of the Old Testament and the Jesus we meet in the New Marcion thought that the God of the, Old, of the Old Testament was inconsistent. He was jealous. He was overly wrathful. But Jesus, on the other hand, he believed, was the proper object of our worship, the loving representation of, of the true God. There's much more to Marcion's thought than this, but this was his main idea. And I have to say that it's gotten remarkable mileage over the years, because I hear this objection fairly often, actually. It goes like this. I don't like the God of the Old Testament, people say. He's fickle and vengeful. But Jesus, I like Jesus. Jesus loved all, and he taught us to do the same. I'm sure you've heard this before. Maybe you've said this before and, and think this way after looking at the God of the Old Testament and the Jesus of the New. The main problem with this way of thinking, and this is why Marcion was uh, deemed a heretic at one point in time, is that it's, it's quite easily dismissed by a deep reading of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament, while hating idolatry and punishing it severely, is actually quite patient, slow to anger, abounding in love. At the slightest sign of repentance, he is quick to forgive. Just think of when Jonah went to Nineveh. That was a wicked city, we were told. And God had a plan to destroy it. 
But then Jonah preached and the people repented and God changed his mind and didn't destroy the city. He is quick to forgive. And Jesus, of course, fully modeled the patient love of the Lord, but he also showcased God's justice in his teaching and preaching and living, really. When confronted with people buying and selling in the temple, Jesus overturned their tables. He also wasn't afraid to warn people again and again, really, about the uh, uh, serious consequences of their sin. In fact, and this might surprise you, and if you read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke especially, you see this all the time, and it's quite surprising. No one in the scriptures talks more frequently, explicitly, and colorfully about the reality of hell than Jesus. He talks about it more than Peter and Paul put together. In fact, Jesus describes hell in greater detail than he describes heaven. Don't believe me? Here are a few examples. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus is quite uh, fierce in this passage, warning people that there are real consequences to moral laxity and undisciplined living. Later in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells a few parables that end in Judgment Day uh, scenes. In the parable of the talents, for instance, Jesus condemns the, the servant who buries the master's talent in the ground out of fear. The punishment for this fearful servant is severe. Throw that worthless servant outside, goes the parable, into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in the very next parable, Jesus describes a, a day of decisive separation, a day when the sheep will be separated from the goats. And he concludes at the end of that parable that those who neglect the poor, the hungry, the prisoner, they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And I could go on with quotes like this. There's the parable of the wedding banquet and what happens at the end of that parable and the parable of the rich man in Lazarus. Each of these parables ends with a clear picture of judgment, warning, and this weeping and gnashing of teeth, which I think is a sign just of misery and violence, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And of course, there's the parable in front of us today, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and, uh, and uh, caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we're starting to see here that Jesus clearly believed in a day of final judgment and punishment. Do you? In the Christian tradition, there are three main views about hell and the final judgment, and I'll lay them out for you this morning. There's the universalist perspective, 
the annihilationist perspective and the eternal punishment or judgment perspective. Universalists believe that in the end, basically everyone will enter the kingdom of heaven. God's redemptive love will extend to all. Christ's death will cover all. God is love, and God will not allow people to suffer eternally the consequences of their sin. If not right, right away, he will one day incorporate all into his kingdom of peace. That's the universalist perspective. The main trouble with universalism is that it's pretty hard to reconcile universalism with the parables uh, like the one that we have in front of us today. Why would Jesus talk so consistently and explicitly about Judgment Day if it weren't a real reality and if everyone just more or less got a participation ribbon at the end of history? Those who take the Bible seriously, usually, that's maybe a strong statement, but, but evangelical, Catholic, Orthodox, uh, most um, uh, Christian traditions usually end up holding uh, the second uh, or third view. And both annihilationalists and eternal judgment people believe in a day of sorting and separation. Not all will enter the kingdom of heaven. They both hold that in common. And they believe that when Jesus returns, he will separate the righteous from the unrighteous. But then they differ on what happens next. Annihilationists believe that the wicked will be destroyed on Judgment Day, and then that is that. That's sort of game over for the unrighteous. In the book of Revelation, the picture we seem, we seem to get there uh, seems to point in this direction. In Revelation 20, for instance, only those who belong to Jesus are welcomed into the New Jerusalem, the wicked, however, are thrown into the lake of fire, and it is said that Satan will be tormented forever in that lake, but that is not said of the others who are thrown in. So that picture, it's one of finality for me anyway, this, this end to wickedness. It's all piled in, done. There's no room for hell or this place of eternal judgment in the new heavens and the new earth. Most days, I find myself uh, in agreement, at least partially, with the annihilationists. This view is uh, certainly most attractive to me, uh, but I have to admit there seems to be more biblical support for the final one, the eternal punishment camp. This view states that life continues on eternally for both the wicked and the righteous. The righteous will enjoy life with God forever, and the wicked will be cast away from God's presence and suffer the consequences of their sin once again forever. In our parable today, it seems as though the blazing furnace is not the end for those who get thrown in. The weeping and gnashing of teeth, this picture of misery, picture of misery and violence, it happens after the wicked are thrown into the furnace. In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in, in Luke chapter 16, the rich man is not annihilated when he dies. Rather, his life carries on and he suffers in a distinct place, a place that he is not allowed to leave. And as we already heard in the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, the punishment given to those who do not feed the hungry or clothe the sick or visit the prisoner um, is eternal. The Greek word is right there. They will suffer eternal punishment. The Heidelberg Catechism teaches eternal punishment, as does the Belgic Confession and the Canons of Dort. 
So all the confessional material in our denomination uh, is in this camp and testifies that this is what the scriptures say. So there's the overview. One of the difficulties we have, though, in trying to describe hell with any accuracy is that the Bible's language for it is all pictorial and metaphorical. Even the word hell itself is, is a picture. Gehenna, the Greek word for hell, was literally a smoldering garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. It was a hot place filled with decomposing food and feces and all kinds of other gross things that you wouldn't want to be messed up into. So when Jesus says, if your right arm causes you to sin, cut it off, lest you go down into Gehenna, he wants people to be picturing this smoldering garbage dump filled with all kinds of terrible things. So this is the picture we're given. We're also given pictures of a lake of fire. You know, these things are pictures meant to describe a reality, but they're not necessarily the reality itself. It's just metaphorical, meant for our imagination to try to figure that out. I have found in my reading that two people have really helped me um, in my own journey of trying to understand hell and final judgment. And those two people are C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller. For them, the scary biblical, biblical pictures and metaphors are simply seeking to describe the awful reality of what it means to do life apart from God and his good presence. Uh, for Keller and Lewis, hell is not a fiery place ruled by a red guy with a pitchfork. It's much worse than that, they say. It's the place where God lets us be as twisted and wicked as we want to be. There's no common grace in hell, no basic created goodness left, no parameters on human behavior either, just the terrible, terrible disintegration that happens when everyone in a community decides to worship themselves. And this terrible disintegration of personhood and community, body and soul, says Lewis, is not just something that happens at the end time after Judgment Day. It's something that we can participate in today if we're not careful. Lewis describes the progression like this, and this sort of made the hair on the back of my neck stand up when I read it. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but then there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or, or even to enjoy it, but just, to grum but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. And I'm wondering if you can kind of see yourself in this statement. In each of us, there is something growing that will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. Hell starts small. A little cheating on your taxes here and there, a few simple clicks of the mouse. You wish you wouldn't do it, but it's not a big deal, you tell yourself. Everyone else is doing it too. So you go on. Pretty soon, that greed or that lust, it starts to 
take more of your life, take hold of more of your mind and heart, begins to twist your soul. You start to self-justify your behavior. You start crossing boundaries that you would have that you would have been horrified to cross just a few years earlier. You worry about what others think, but not enough to stop. And slowly others, all else becomes devalued in your mind. Mere tools in the search for more and more of what you want. Now imagine that process going on for eternity. But without the safeguards of a working conscience, a functioning justice system, or friends around you who care about you. And it's not just happening to you, but to everyone else around you. That is hell. And that's the best picture I know, how, that's the best I can describe it. It's the place where God allows us to be as self-centered as we want to be. God isn't there tormenting people, torturing people. He respects our freedom and simply hands us over into sin's vicious embrace. There will be misery and violence, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I don't know about you, but that picture scares me a lot more than a blazing furnace or a red dude with a pitchfork. A few weeks ago, a woman called me, someone from the community. She wanted to talk with the pastor, so we set up a visit. I asked Ashley if she could be at church on that day when the visit took place, because I was kind of worried about it. Something didn't sound right on the phone. Within five minutes, I was totally on edge uh, and had to fight to remain calm, to listen well, to not be anxious. This woman was caught in a descending spiral of trouble, but she wasn't uh, repentant or ready to take responsibility. From her perspective, the whole world was against her, her family, the church. I listened and I empathized. I tried to encourage her to, to make healthy steps, to have healthy conversations with the right people. I'm afraid she didn't come looking for a healthy way forward. She wanted an ally in her angry campaign of blame and avoidance. A few conversations later, and it came to light that this woman was kind of caught in a little web of lies and deceit. And I pass absolutely no judgment, and I feel deeply for her. I have boundaries now, yes, but judgment, no. Because I know that that self-destructive journey can happen to me too. And it's not too hard to get stuck to blame, to be lost in envy, to celebrate other people being knocked down a few rungs. Sin is so deceitful. It messes with our minds. And Satan is always ready to point out the next little step that will lead closer to our destruction. Hell is a journey that starts on earth. And I wonder, do you feel it? Do you sense that into your, in yourself? At a certain point, God will respect your desire to worship yourself, and he'll leave you to it, to pursue your own desires with reckless abandon. And when the day of separation comes, the kingdom of heaven is like a net 
that was let down into the lake, and it caught all kinds of fish. But when full, the fishermen pulled the net up on the shore, and they sat down, and they separated. They collected the good and threw them in baskets, but the other fish they tossed to the side. Cynics will say that this is all a scare tactic, fear-mongering, designed to produce conformity in our living. And I suppose that's one conclusion you could draw from, uh, from Jesus' words here. But another conclusion you could draw is that Jesus loves us enough to tell us the truth about reality. This parable and others like it are coming out of a place of love for Christ. That's why he shares them. The other reason he shares them, I think, other than simple truth-telling, is because they help to showcase, showcase the depths of God's love for us shown in Christ. The Apostles' Creed says that after Jesus was crucified and died and was buried, he descended down into hell meaning he suffered the worst kind of spiritual and physical disintegration that can be imagined. On the cross, Jesus was abandoned by his Father in heaven, cast out into this outer darkness. He experienced the furnace of sin and death. He, the righteous one, experienced the depth of human misery and violence. Why? Why? Why did he do that? Why did he step in, the righteous one, There is only one righteous fish in the lake. He took our place for us and for our salvation to showcase the depth of God's love and to rescue us from this path that leads to destruction. The good fish took upon himself the punishment of the bad so that we could be clothed with his righteousness renewed by his Holy Spirit, and sent off on the path that leads to life by faith. And I think if you don't get the seriousness of the kingdom with its boundaries and, and um, its, its, firm, its firm boundaries, you'll never fully appreciate the power of the cross or the love of God shown in Christ. Nor will you experience the pure bliss of knowing that you are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Some of you here today need to be assured of this. You don't need to be scared anymore uh, by this talk of hell and, and suffering because you have faith in Christ and are, in a way, torturing yourself. And so I have words of assurance for you today. The promise of the gospel as written in Romans, is is that nothing in all creation, not even the power of sin or hell, can separate you from your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Trust Him. Receive the righteousness that comes through faith and know that you are collected and a part of God's kingdom. He will not let you go. Perhaps, but perhaps there are others here today that need more of a challenging word. You need the truth that the kingdom is not just an open tent for everyone, but a tent with boundaries, 
with insiders and outsiders. Maybe you're coasting along. Maybe you're coming to church this Sunday morning, but living for yourself the rest of the week, sliding your way through life without much care or concern for God and the things of God. Know today that this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Like this net cast down into the lake. Caught all kinds of fish, but not all of them were kept. There will come a day when the Spirit stops fishing and the net will be dragged to shore. You want to be ready. Amen.